Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Once again, one Ukraine matters, because Ukraine matters for the unity of all members of the European Union. Ukraine matters for the unity of the free world. For today, the free world is in jeopardy. And this is the war not just between Ukraine and Russia. This is the war between the past and the future. This is the war between the dark and the light. This is the war between the freedom and dictatorship. Words just as relevant and true today, but they were spoken seven years ago by former Ukrainian Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk during the 2015 AJC Global Forum in Washington, D.C. That night, Yatsenyuk told AJC leaders about Ukraine's aspirations to forge a stable, strong democracy and to confront Russian threats to turn back the clock. He also warned that whatever happens in Ukraine could have implications for the larger pursuit of global nuclear nonproliferation. Seven years later, the current president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, is once again appealing for support. After a brutal attack on Tuesday that damaged the memorial to the more than 100,000 murdered at Babanyar, he is asking the world to fulfill the promise of never again. With me now to discuss the tragedy unfolding in Ukraine is AJC CEO David Harris. David, it's good to have you with us. Hi, Manya. Good evening. Was the world listening to Arseniy Yatsenyuk in 2015? Certainly, AJC was listening very carefully because we did invite um, Yatsenyuk, then Prime Minister, to speak at our global forum. And the invitation did not just come out of thin air. We had met with him several times, in Kiev especially. Among the many things that make me proud of AJC is that we have been consistent since 1991, that's now 31 years, in our support for Ukraine. We were the first and, I believe, only Jewish organization to call on the United States administration to recognize the rebirth of independence in Ukraine when others were largely missing in action or absent or failed to understand the importance of this. We had uniquely, among all the organizations in the world, Jewish and non-Jewish, to the very best of my knowledge, we had been the only ones to establish a temporary office in Kiev as an expression of solidarity with Kiev during the Maidan Revolution. And as Russia invaded and occupied Crimea and Donbass in eastern Ukraine, so we understood it. No question about it. We understood it. As for the rest of the world, I think two things happened. Number one, when Putin stopped, there were probably those who breathed a sigh of relief, uh, suggesting that, well, you know, it's not right that he did it, but if that's all, we could probably learn to live with it, which I think is exactly what Putin had counted on. And life returned more or less to normal as a consequence with Russia. And there were those who wanted to believe that you know, that was that. And there were even some who tried to sort of rationalize or justify the traditional Russian connection to Crimea or to this part of Ukraine, well, we should have learned from Munich, 1938, from the lessons of World War II, 
that, as Churchill said, I'm paraphrasing, the appeaser is the one who feeds the crocodile, believing that they'll be eaten last. So Putin had already seized Crimea. He had seized Donbass. Earlier, who remembers, he had seized two parts of Georgia in the Caucasus region. He had created a frozen situation in Transnistria, in the sovereign country of Moldova. He had essentially created a satellite nation of Belarus. So what Putin was doing was like a fencer. He was lunging, and then he was stepping back, and he was assessing. And he felt that having gotten away with these acts and having seen business more or less return to usual, now it was time for the big prize. And for Putin, the biggest prize has always been not slices of Georgia and not slices of Moldova and not even the control of Belarus. The big prize has always been Ukraine. And he has denied that there is such a country as Ukraine. He has denied its right to sovereignty. Uh, he has said so all along. And now he's out to prove it. And it's the role of the rest of the world to prove that he's miscalculated and big time. Thousands of Ukrainians and Russians are now dead in a conflict that never should have happened in the first place. And then yesterday we heard Russian missiles struck near the Holocaust Memorial at Babinyar. And I wanted to ask you, what were your first thoughts when you heard that news? My first reaction was horror. But then again, um, given the nature of Russia's reckless, illegal, outrageous invasion of Ukraine, tragically, events like this are almost bound to happen. We were in Ukraine as recently as this January on a solidarity visit understanding the perilous state of things in Ukraine. We were there to meet with the government. We were there to be with our friends in the Jewish community. This was no more than, what, six weeks ago. And we once again visited Babiyar, or in Ukrainian, Babinyar, as we had done just, what, two months earlier in October, three months earlier in October of 2021, when Babiyar site was finally, finally, after so many years, finally properly memorialized. And while Putin, again, uses the term denazification, what has he done? He has now, again, consciously or through the fog of war, he has attacked and damaged a site where as many as 100,000 or more then Soviet citizens, primarily Jews, also including Russians, Russian POWs were mass murdered, mass murdered. And even their final place of rest, which was only fittingly finished in October of 2021, now lies damaged. And he wants to talk about denazification. How shocking, how painful, how outrageous that this would happen. And again, it shows not just the nature of war, but again, we have to remember this is not just war. This was a war launched by an individual who has a name, Vladimir Putin, who has a title, president, who leads a country, Russia. And we dare not ever be ambiguous about exactly who have committed these crimes against humanity. Thousands of people dead, countless refugees, how much damage, and now the attack on a Holocaust site of sacred memory? 
are war crimes tribunals in the future for Vladimir Putin and his accomplices, his henchmen? It's an obvious question to ask. But right now we're in the midst of war, and we applaud the extraordinary courage and bravery of the Ukrainian people. And every step that's been taken by the world to try and counter the Russian move, and that has to be sustained. This will not be a quick war, and the outcome will not be determined overnight. So our ability to stand together and to be resilient and perseverant will be challenged. And I'm betting that Vladimir Putin is counting on fractures in our unity. I'm betting that he's counting on the fact that we'll begin to accept the new normal and eventually return to business as usual. And we have to prove him wrong. Why Ukraine? Why is he so focused on Ukraine? Is it simply geography? The driving premise of Putin is not just geography. It's an attempt to restore the grandeur, the power, the reach of Mother Russia. And he himself gave a hint, more than a hint, in 2005 when he said publicly the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what happened after 1991? For the next 10 years, Russia, in his view, became a weak, third-rate nation. It had lost its power. It it had lost its, its, its stature in the world. And when he took control of the country, his aim was to restore it. And Ukraine is the big prize. Ukraine itself is larger than any European country. If you look at the extent of resources in Ukraine, natural resources, metals, minerals, food, arable land, Ukraine is a huge prize. And for him as well, you know, he insists that there's no separate Ukrainian nationality. In effect, that the language is almost artificial, that Ukrainians really are Slavic Russians of one people, one background, one history. By the way, he's completely wrong on the history, but it doesn't stop him from asserting it. So it's not just about geography, though it is. It's just one simple fact. If I'm not mistaken, Ukraine has more uranium than any other country on the European continent, perhaps even beyond. So seizing Ukraine for him is about history. It's about nationality. It's about power. It's about grandeur. And it's also about the very practical resources that, from his perspective, Ukraine offers to a Russia that is sort of trying to restore its place in the world. We warn about Holocaust denial and distortion. Is this a clear example when Vladimir Putin talks about Russia's mission to denazify Ukraine? Is this a clear example of Holocaust distortion? And is this the ultimate danger of using those kinds of metaphors and language? First and foremost, Putin's claim that his justification for invading Ukraine was at least in part to, quote, denazify Ukraine is pure and utter nonsense. It has nothing to do with the truth, nothing whatsoever. Ukraine today is a very different country than it might once have been. It's a democratic country. So much so that its voters, freely elected, an openly proud Jew, Zelensky, to lead the country. And by the way, he has led the country incredibly impressively. So denazify the country from whom? From the very same people who elected 
a Ukrainian Jew to lead their country. If anything, let's be blunt. If there's any denazification that's required, it begins in Moscow right now. Now, I know very well that for the Russian psyche, that sounds deeply offensive. After all, they will say, we, from 1941 to 1945, were central to the defeat of Nazi Germany. And that's true. But, it's a big but. What Putin is doing today is drawn from the playbook of Adolf Hitler in 1938 and 1939. Fake history, phony grievances, distraction, diversion, aggression. So, denazify, let's begin in Moscow. Do you believe his argument has worked to deter any other nations from coming to Ukraine's assistance? I think the most recent vote in the United Nations General Assembly is a pretty telling statement about what the world thinks of this invasion. There were exactly five countries, including Russia and its satellite, Belarus, five countries that stood against the resolution. And of the other three, I'm sure that Russia takes great pride that one of them is North Korea, which itself is home to countless concentration camps, imprisoning countless thousands of North Koreans. Uh, and another one is Syria, which is responsible for what? Half a million or more people murdered within the borders of the country because of the nature of the Syrian regime led by Bashar Assad and literally millions of Syrians who've either been internally displaced or forced to leave, including triggering the European migration crisis some six, seven years ago. That's the entire basis of the support in the world today from Vladimir Putin. Russia plus four. It's a powerful, powerful statement that what Putin has done, whatever his calculations were, a number of them have clearly misfired. He has managed to unite Europe as never before, certainly in recent memory. Europe has found its spine. Germany has massively increased its defense spending. Countries like Germany and traditionally neutral Sweden have been shipping weapons as fast as they can now to Ukraine. The transatlantic partnership has never been stronger. There have been street protests in Russia itself with thousands of people reportedly having been arrested. The Ukrainians have shown fierce resistance in a way that I'm sure Putin never, ever imagined. And the effort to isolate Russia, including the unprecedented steps taken by Switzerland to freeze Russian assets and Swiss banks, I mean, all speak to the sense of outrage and fury that in the year 2022, Vladimir Putin would take such a brazen step. Now, in the end, will this defeat Putin? I don't know. On the ground, the odds are in favor of Russia, its size, its military power, its planning. But I have to say that whatever happens in Ukraine, on so many other fronts, Russia has lost. And it's lost big, big time. You have said before that as negotiations over the nuclear agreement with Iran wind down, Iran is watching what happens with Ukraine, that this is a test of the West's resolve. Is this also a test of how committed world powers are to the conditions of nuclear non-proliferation agreements? I'm referring to the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, in which Ukraine agreed to give up its nuclear defenses in exchange for assurances from the United States, Britain, and Russia. First of all, I would say, yes, of 
course, Iran is watching this and watching it microscopically. I also would have to believe that so are many other countries in the world, including bad actors like North Korea or foes of the United States today, like China has become a foe of the United States. Friends of the United States are also watching in order to assess whether they can count on the friendship of the United States, whether alliances have meaning, whether commitments have meaning. The whole world is watching this. But especially, yes, countries like Iran. And if Iran concludes either that America, in their eyes, looks weak or irresolute or spineless, and also if they believe that the U.S. is now so preoccupied with Russia and beyond with China, which we've said on many occasions is our primary challenge, then Iran may feel that it has a lot more space to operate because the U.S. doesn't have the bandwidth to deal with so many challenges at once. And this is where the temptation by the U.S. and its allies to sign a deal with Iran enters the picture. Is this the best deal we can get with Iran? Is this going to be a longer and stronger deal with Iran? As Secretary of State Blinken already said last year, was the goal of American diplomacy? Or is this going to be a deal that's sort of driven by a kind of practical consideration that we're dealing with too many fronts at once, too many danger zones, and the Iran issue may be the low-hanging fruit here because there has been a negotiation going on all along since the Biden administration took power in January 2021. So let's try and get this one off the table so we can focus on Russia and China. And that may seem tempting, but it also offers the possibility that we'll end up with a weaker or some would say an even weaker deal than we otherwise might have. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Of course, anytime, Manya. If you're looking for ways to help and make a difference, you can find details in our show notes about AJC's Emergency Relief Fund to provide humanitarian relief to Ukrainian refugees, assist Ukrainian Jews who wish to make Aliyah to Israel, and support and protect Ukrainian Jews who have chosen to stay. You can also find out how to join AJC in calling on Congress to work with the administration in imposing sanctions on Russia for the illegal invasion of its sovereign neighbor. And if you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for a first-person account of the moments before Russia invaded Ukraine from the editor-in-chief of Odessa Review and tablet correspondent Vladislav Davidson. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with me this week is Marsha Bronstein, director of AJC Philadelphia. Philadelphia is home to a large Ukrainian population. It's also home to the Ukrainian Federation of America, an organization founded the year Ukraine declared independence, 1991, to help Ukrainians in times of crisis. Marsha, you're here because of where you've been. You've attended three rallies so far in support of Ukraine, most recently last weekend after Russians attacked its neighbor, What is your personal connection to Ukraine? So, Manya, my family's from Ukraine. Originally, they were in Shadrin in Belarus. That's where they lived. But then they were forced to flee, and they were on the road, and they made their way to Siberia. In Siberia, basically, they were in survival mode. And at the end of the war, they ended up in Ukraine, And they had only one hope, and that was to resume life. And when I think about it, I think it's the same thing that the Ukrainian people want. 
They want safety and protection and normalcy, and they want to resume life. You know, my family also hails from that region. In fact, Manya, the great-grandmother for whom I'm named, came from further north in Belarus, as did your family originally. You know, I think it's important to remember that there is such a rich Jewish history in Ukraine, apart from the persecution, apart from the suffering of our ancestors, one that goes back a thousand years. I mean, it's where many Jewish families like your own began a new life and stayed and practiced their faith. Everyone's talking about how Ukrainians elected a Jewish prime minister and a Jewish president, Volodymyr Zelensky. But in addition, Ukraine also produced some of the greatest centers of Jewish civilization. I mean, Hasidic courts, publishing houses, seminaries, entire villages where the Jewish faith blossomed, including Chernobyl. And in fact, I just read recently that the largest Jewish community center in the world is in Ukraine. So this, of course, is not the first time that you protested Russian aggression and persecution. You were actually quite involved in the marches to free Soviet Jewry, right? Yes, that's true, Manya. I was a teen who grew up during the Soviet Jewry movement. And most of my youth group days were spent attending marches and rallies. I grew up in the Bronx where I attended a youth group from Riverdale and Rabbi Avi Weiss was involved there. My mother would always tell me the same message as I was leaving the house. It was her caveat. You can go to the rally, but do not chain yourself to the fence at the Russian consulate and make sure that you are home for dinner. And these experiences shaped my desire to become a Jewish communal professional. As a matter of fact, in 1980, my first job was with Hyas. I was the Russian resettlement worker in Mount Vernon, New York. And then in 1987, one of my first large projects at the Philadelphia Federation was coordinating the buses for the Freedom Sunday rally for Soviet Jews in Washington, D.C. I remember booking over 140 buses. And with the buses and the trains and the cars, 12,000 people from Philadelphia joined the 250,000 people from all over the United States. And it was quite a victory for freedom. For those who were there and really were able to feel the power of speaking out, we know that it makes a big difference. So I urge everyone today to speak out for those who are voiceless and for those whose human rights are in jeopardy. You raise a good point about that that moment in history shaping your professional decisions and your career path. And I wonder how many young people are watching this unfold today and this is really shaping their future. So after Tuesday's attack, I can't help but think about those who shrugged at AJC's warnings about Holocaust distortion throughout the pandemic, you know, insisting that the comparisons to Nazis and Hitler were just, you know, quote unquote, metaphors to make a point. But this invasion really illustrates the horrific danger of those metaphors. Uh, It makes one wonder whether Putin's denazification of Ukraine, his word, simply refers to the erasure of what the Nazis did 80 years ago. You're so right, Manya. Watching those bombs fall was so painful. And the Russian military attack seems to be killing the victims of the Holocaust for a second time. 
and manipulating the Holocaust to justify an illegal invasion is horrific. It's an affront to all, to everyone who cares about freedom and democracy, but especially for Holocaust survivors, and more specifically for the 9,000 elderly Holocaust survivors who still live in Ukraine. Authorities are estimating thousands of Russians and Ukrainians have lost their lives in the past week during this invasion that never should have happened to begin with. May their memories be a blessing, and may there soon be peace. Shabbat shalom, Marsha. Shabbat shalom, Manya. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 